the name of the values that keep you alive do not let your vision of man be distorted by the ugly, the cowardly, the mindless, and those who have never achieved his title. Do not lose your knowledge that man's proper estate is an upright posture, an intransigent mind, and a step that travels on limited roads. Do not let your fire go out sparked by replacing the spark and hope the swamps of the approximate are not quite the not yet and not at all. The world you desired can be won. It exists. It is real. It is possible. It's yours. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for tuning back in. I'm here again with John. I know we had a couple of audio issues last time, so hopefully this one's a little better for you guys. Uh, but we're excited to talk a little bit more about markets, uh, about recessions, uh, see if we can learn some lessons from the past to give us a bit of an idea of what's coming in the future. And John's had a lot of experience uh, going through a lot of these, uh, especially being in the financial sector during the time. Um, so I wanted to open it up first, talking a little bit about an interesting article we were just talking about before we started recording, uh, which was something about the Pope uh, essentially saying that CDS markets are unethical. He says uh, derivatives markets are a ticking time bomb. And this is uh, very out of character for a pope to be talking about finance, which is really strange. Q said that he was going to have a weird month or a bad month in May, and he already has with some of the stuff coming out about cardinals. Um, but it's interesting to see the pope specifically uh, targeting derivatives markets. Uh, and we were sort of trying to figure out why that was, but it's also interesting just to understand these markets at all. So the fact that the Pope understands credit default swaps um, is, is interesting to me. And so I was having, having uh, John go over those a little bit at first. So you can maybe describe just sort of how credit default swaps ended up leading us towards 2008 uh, and the recession thereafter. Yeah, so basically credit default swaps were um, originally created to provide um, insurance against um, a bond defaulting. So the buyer of a, of a credit default swap is basically buying insurance. They, they pay a, a premium just like you would in insurance and they pay it um, usually monthly. Um, and if the bond doesn't default, then, um, you know, the, the, the buyer just keeps paying the premium and nothing happens. But, um, if the bond uh, does default, then basically the, the party that sold the credit default swap um, has to pay the, the buyer the, um, the face value of the bond. So it's, um, it's really, it serves a purpose of providing insurance, and that's, um, that's, that's a good thing. Um, They're a relatively new invention, though, aren't they? Are people kind of sort of constantly coming up with these new tools and mechanisms? Yeah, they were. I mean, they can be traced back. The roots of credit defaults often kind of be traced back to roughly the mid-90s. There was a group at J.P. Morgan that, that kind of created the first instrument that was the predecessor to the credit default swap, um, the type of insurance that I, that I just described. But they were... Um, kind of slow getting getting off the ground and didn't really become uh, big until the um, probably mid 2000s um, when they they started being used for a lot of other things you know besides just um, insurance and so obviously the seller of the credit default swap must have a reason to, to want to sell this insurance and that's probably because they don't 
they don't believe that the bond is going to default or that the probability of the bond defaulting, um, you know, compared to the amount of premium that they're going to get is, is way worth that risk. And so, you know, both parties were entering into credit default swap for a, um, a specific reason. And it, it really wasn't um, a big deal until uh, the housing crisis, um, the housing prices started to get into a bubble in the uh, the mid 2000s. And there were some credit, credit default swaps started becoming a more of a, a speculative um instrument and there was a lot of activity on on both sides buying and selling those and there was um sometimes there were there were bonds being uh, created just to have credit default swaps on them and and there would um you know eventually their uh, credit default swaps were uh, i don't want to get too far ahead of us but yeah. they were being they were being used um uh as basically synthetic bonds um because the the seller of a credit default swap has basically the same exposure as someone who buys a bond so what were the sort of government catalysts that sparked uh some of the problems that started to happen so i know there are certain laws passed um that you mentioned uh before we started talking that sort of uh forced the market in a certain direction uh i think there was you said they were passed under was it bill clinton was the uh, or was it? I think it was Bush actually. Under under both, there were starting in the mid nineties. There, there was um, there was a, a push by the federal government to make home ownership more affordable. Um, the um, I don't know the name of the specific act, but it was a um, something like the Affordable Housing or Equal Lending Act. There was a, a series of different actions that, that the government took to make it you know, easier um which is it's um you know that's home ownership is is a, a good thing and um it, it probably started out with the right intentions but um between the mid 1990s and mid 2000s um it just it, it really got out of out of control um the um Government-sponsored entities, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, were also in, involved in um, making it easier for homeowners to get mortgages, and um, specifically homeowners that may not ordinarily qualify for mortgages. Um, so they essentially forced lenders to take what would normally be a very risky proposition, but they sort of incentivized them to do so. Is that right? Well, a lot of these riskier loans were basically kind of backstopped by the implicit guarantee of the U.S. government uh, through Fannie and Freddie, um, basically backstopping these loans, even though they're, they're technically they're called government-sponsored entities, so they're not um, technically, <laughs> but there's there, it's implied that yeah. it, loans that... Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac issue would be basically backed by the U.S. government. So that um, led to a lot of uh, loans being made that um, probably shouldn't have been. Um, but just it eventually it, it got out of control. And it, what originally started as, as um, what, what was a pretty good idea to make home ownership more affordable um, ended up 
and ultimately being one of the contributing factors to the financial crisis. Yeah, <laughs> significant uh, un, uh, unexpected consequences to that one. So, I mean, we were talking a little bit about, uh, I guess, yield curves and bonds and how those can sometimes be indicated for the indicators for the broader economy. Um, and so you said, you know, there's certain points in the past where that curve had fallen almost flat. Is that right? Yeah. So the yield curve is, that's just the, it's the difference in the, the yield of different maturity bonds. Um, anything from um, really two year notes out to 30 year bonds, but what generally um, financial market, uh, Traders, they look at the difference between the two-year and the ten-year note, um, and is that the shortest and longest period? No, it's just it's kind of the two most active um, maturities that are traded. You, you have everything from three-month T-bills all the way out to thirty-year bonds, and now they have um, something called an ultra bond. Um, but <laughs> it's bond. really it's really the two and the ten-year. Um, spread that that the market looks at, and typically there's um, around a couple of percentage points difference between that. We were just looking at this uh, at this chart here, going back to 2013 in December 2013. The, the difference between the yield on the two-year note and the um, ten-year note was um, about 2.6 percent. The ten-year note was two point six percent higher. Yield. So, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, well, it means that's basically at that point it's an it's an upward slope, sloping yield curve. The um, the uh, the two-year is higher than the one-year, and the five-year is higher than the two-year, and the ten-year is higher than the five years. It slopes up, um, which is what it which is um, what you would normally see. That's the majority of the time. Um, the longer term maturities yield more than the shorter maturities. And so what we were just talking about is, you know, an inverted yield curve where the shorter maturities like two year note uh, has a higher yield than, than 10 year note. And one of the interesting things about inverted yield curve is, is that it's, it's a very accurate predictor of an economic recession. In fact, um, Going back to 1955, inverted yield curves have predicted all, all nine recessions um, since 1955. In fact, the, the Great Recession of 2000 uh, basically started in 2008. Um, that was preceded by an inverted yield curve that um, it basically it was inverted in 2007. And then um, in about a year after that, uh, the recession started, the Great Recession. So it's um, we're looking at it now, like I said, back in 2013 at 2.66, the 10-year higher over the two-year. And as of now, the 10-year is only about 50 basis points. 50 basis points is just a half of a percent. So essentially, you assume that if you're locking your money up for a longer period of time, you're going to get a better return. And then it's... Uh, sort of a red flag if all of a sudden you have a shorter bond term and it seems to be paying off more so than some of the higher rates are moving towards that interest rate? Well, what's happening is that 
more investors are buying the, the longer term maturities, which is causing their their yields to go down because as as the prices go up, the yields go down. So there's there's more demand for the longer term maturities because the the idea is that if a recession is is coming, um, Federal Reserve will lower short term rates um, in a recession, and when short term rates go down. Um, Basically, that means if you're you're holding a, a short-term note and it matures, you have to turn around and reinvest it at a lower rate. So traders are, are looking at a, at a recession coming up, and they don't want to buy short-term notes because they expect there to be uh, lower rates in the next few years. So they're buying the longer maturities, which causes the price of those to go up and the yield to go down. And then basically the curve um, between the shorter term and longer term maturities flattens and eventually goes inverted. And that's a, it's a very reliable predictor of our, uh, economic recession. And it, it's, it's not inverted yet, but it is, um, it, it is kind of um, interesting. This, this chart that we were looking at yeah. of how it's over the last you know, roughly uh, four years, um, four and a half years, it's, um, it's trended down from, from uh, about 2.6% difference and only half, half of a percent. So what you're saying essentially is investors want more so to lock their money into a rate for a longer period of time because they're assuming that somewhere within that time frame something is going to happen. So that's... Yeah, so the 10-year note is, I mean, they're buying more of the 10-year note than the two-year note because they're um, assuming that whatever economic recession is coming will have um, resolved itself in 10 years, when it comes time to reinvest that money, um, you know, rates will at least be the same or possibly higher. They don't want to buy a two year notes because uh, they believe a recession is coming two years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, two year rate is going to be lower because the Fed will lower short term rates in a, in a recession. In, in two years, they don't want to reinvest at a lower rate. It's, it's surprisingly accurate because the, the, the market for um, US treasuries and when we're talking about the yield curve, we're talking specifically about U.S. treasuries. That's yeah. really what what the traders are looking at when they look at yield curve and um, economic potential of economic recession. So, the, um, the the potential for there to be a, re- a recession is um, the the fact that there's so much activity in this treasury uh, market, and there's so much information that's reflected in that trading. Um, there's a lot of people out there that study um, the uh, the economic conditions and are they're they're pretty savvy that the trading reflects pretty accurately what what will likely happen. So <laughs> well, they have the most skin in the game, so they have to get it right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, it, the yield curve is, yeah, like I said, it's a pretty um, in, inverted yield curve. Yeah. Um, so. It's it's not um, and so inverted yet, but it's almost flat. So it's something that um, traders should be aware of if if they're um, if they have a lot of exposure to to equities. Um, it looks like some of the past drops were more. Uh, there was a higher derivative, so there's more of a. It was it was a quicker upward trend and a quicker downward trend. It seems like. Uh, looking at the chart we have, and I can post this link for you guys, but it seems like we almost recovered there 
and then it started going right back down. So what do you think happened between those two peaks that led it again in a downward direction instead of back up? Are there just certain, I guess it seems like they never really go above two. So is that sort of where it tops out or, you know, is there room for more upward mobility? Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the long term average is uh, somewhere around probably one and, th one and three quarters to 2%. And we could probably find a chart that would show us what that average is. But it, yeah, you're right. It, it, the yield curve did kind of peak at about 2.8% in, in February of 2010. And then it dropped all the way down to um, uh, about 1, 1 1.3% in, in August of 2012. Uh, but then it went right back up to, um, you know, like 2.66 so in December much? 2013. So it, it was, yeah, it was headed, it was headed down and it was a, it was a pretty steep flattening that occurred. Um, but it, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's hard to say what, um, you know, what was specifically caused it to come back up. But what we're seeing now is a, a pretty, pretty extended, um, decline from December of 2013 to now that um, you know, we're not we're not sure where it's going to go but it's something that uh, traders should probably keep an eye on so what kind of government policy are you keeping an eye on or what sort of things affect these curves uh, in you know a major way so I think it's, it's somewhat different from equities markets where it's more reliant on government is that right so more the Treasury and more the Fed well, I mean, the things affecting interest rates would be, you know, economic growth um, and inflation. And um, when it, when interest rates go up for for the right reason, uh, it's good for equity markets. For for example, interest rates going up because of economic growth, um, with in, inflation being relatively constrained. Um, that's good, and that will that will uh, lead to healthy equity markets. But when interest rates are going up because of because of, because of high inflation or rapidly increasing inflation, um, that that could you know indicate slowing economic growth, and that that could be you know something that could indicate this potential recession that might be coming from an inverted yield curve. So, kind of want to keep an eye on the inflation rate um and on on gdp growth and we were just looking at the i mean the inflation over the last few months has gone from uh every month the government issues the you know basically it's the annualized in, inflation rate and in yeah. january it was i believe it was 2.0 went to 2.1 2.2 and and believe in april is 2.5 um so I mean, you could look at a trend and see that the, it looks like the inflation rate is, is definitely um, picking up. But you would also want to compare that to the GDP growth yeah. to see if the growth. I know uh, GDP growth has been at 3%. I think if he hits targets again uh, in, I believe it was April, so I'm not sure if they hit it, um, but it was going to be an average of 3% for each month he had been in office. Um, uh, Trump had been in office, so that his target, I think, was 3% GDP growth, and I think they've hit it so far, uh, in which case, so in that case, would it mean that it's, so what What would be the difference in GDP growth and interest rates that you would be looking for? I would want to see that the growth rate of the GDP is, is kind of at least keeping 
pace or out outpacing the growth of uh, of inflation. If inflation is going up faster than the GDP growth rate, um, that would you know was probably what leads to a um, flattening of the yield curve. So you want to see um, you know inf inflation going up is okay as long as the GDP uh, growth rate is going up at least as fast or, or, or faster. So keep an eye on, on both of those um, and also on, on the yield curve. Uh, if it continues, if the growth rate of inflation, if inflation is going up faster than uh, GDP and the yield curve continues to flatten, I, I would see that as a, as a warning sign. Um, for equities. So how much do you think buyers of bonds, so like investors, so I know um, Chinese, I'm not sure, I think it was China, I'm not sure if it was China or Chinese investors announced, major Chinese investors, that they're no longer going to be buying uh, U.S. bonds, so uh, certain treasury bonds. So is does that have, I guess, a broader impact on some of these rates as far as just how many people are willing to buy the bonds? So are there certain things that you can do to attract foreign investment that are that are good? Or because I know during you know during times of war in the U.S., we printed a lot of bonds. Um, that's how sort of greenbacks got started. Um, so is is that something to be looking out for? Is foreign investment versus domestic investment in bonds? Is that something? Yeah, that something you should watch because the Chinese are the largest investors in in U.S. Treasuries. Um, I don't know the exact number or the percentage, but it's it's a very large percent of our treasuries. And if they wanted to, and if they wanted to dump all of those, it, it could have a significant impact on our interest rates. And I think the 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 headline that you might have been referring to about them not buying anymore was I think it was kind of part of the posturing that was taking place around this potential um, trade war yeah. and these uh, the tariffs and. Um, I think it was more of of just bargaining chip of sorts. It was like you know, hey, we can um, you know we can dump all of your bonds, and that would be that would be bad. So yeah, we've got some um, cards to play too. <laughs> I don't think that they will, um, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on because if if they do start selling, um, you know, I don't know that there's that that much um, that there are that many additional buyers that could that could replace them to the to the amount of um, volume that they hold so it's it's yeah it is kind of um, leverage that they have over us that you know um, if we get into some kind of trade war with them they could dump our bonds but I don't think it's gonna happen and so in that respect is sort of running up the deficit and the global or the national debt is that something that I guess rings alarm bells in other countries for other investors? Do you think they're paying attention to indicators like that? Or where do you think they're paying attention uh, as far as, you know, do you think it's just the rates that they really care about? Or are they looking at more of the broad economy before they make those decisions? Uh, so other investors in, in U.S. Treasuries, I mean, they, it, how much outstanding debt does the U.S. have? That's, I mean, that's something that they, they consider, but as long as the um, the U.S. economy is is growing, is continuing to grow at the rate 
that it is, um, the the likelihood of of the U.S. defaulting on any of those bonds is is very low. It's um, I mean they're they're the um, basically the highest rated safest bonds that you know, you can buy, and and I think if our economy was 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 not doing well, and we, but we were continuing to to run up debt, that would be a um, a warning sign. But um, I think investors, outside investors outside of our, our country, would um, continue to buy bonds as long as it was um, apparent that we would we would be able to pay them back because our economy yeah. was growing. So it was pretty smart then for Trump to start with tax reform and uh, some of his some projects like that before moving on to other I guess other parts of his policy that are going to run up the deficit you know even more people talked about that omnibus spending bill that was you know a massive amount of money a lot of fiscal conservatives were very unhappy with that um, but essentially what you're saying is really he would only have the impetus to do that uh, so so long as he made sure the economy was growing at enough of a rate prior to keep spending at the levels we are. Is that right? Yeah, I think probably the, the, the best thing that came out of the tax reform was the, the corporate tax rate being lower because um, that is, uh, has really boosted um, a lot of uh, corporate um, profits. Um, in, in, in fact, I, uh, read somewhere that the the the, the, per, the percent of increase in um, earnings um, like for example the first quarter earnings of of 2018 compared to first quarter of 2017 that percentage increase um, has actually not been reflected in the amount of increase in the S and P five hundred yet. Now, I mean, in other words, right. it means that the that the stock market basically so would, if you're trading on multiples of earnings, you would expect with a twenty percent increase in earnings, the multiple would be reflected in of that. Exactly. If corporate earnings are have increased, uh, you know, ten or fifteen percent year over year, you would expect equity prices to reflect that, but. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in, in front of me, but I had read that the percentage increase in earnings is actually higher than the percentage increase um, in equities over a similar period. So you would expect that to eventually get um, factored into the market. I mean, it makes it look like there's more room uh, for equities to run you know, uh, if if there's not a recession. So um, it's you know it's a very delicate balance between GDP growth and and inflation and. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, because I know a lot of people were criticizing, you know, the multiples that a lot of, especially tech stocks, have been trading at, saying that it's sort of unprecedented or at least uh, hadn't really happened since more of the dot com bubble. I mean, do you see any of the dot com bubble reflected in what's happening with tech stocks now? Yeah, possibly there would be more likelihood of a bubble in in tech than there might be in in say industrial companies um but i i, I think that's something that's probably pretty in, inherent to the just the tech um sector yeah as it, um there are always high expectations and bust and, yeah. cycles um the 
the, the multiples on corporate earnings for the industrial companies is um, not a high above the long-term average. I don't, I don't believe it's, it's not a cause for alarm yet, but there's always, it seems that, um, you know, some, some tech companies that is uh, Apple, I believe is not, this is a pretty old multiple from what I believe yeah. it's around 15 or 16 times forward earnings, I think, um, which is, which is, um, actually seems like a bargain yeah. when compared to some other tech companies that maybe hundreds, hundreds and of times. They've been um, hoarding cash forever, but I think they're finally starting to pay back their investors. Um, and, and that's something interesting too. It seems like companies really aren't paying out dividends the way they used to. Um, do you think, some of these markets are being affected by the fact that there are so many more options for investing. So the internet has brought about the ability to invest in, you know, a property for Airbnb or, you know, there are a lot of other ways people can invest. Do you think that's affecting markets at all? It's um, sort of a broad question, but <laughs> I mean, it seems like, do you think this model for markets is going to exist for a long time? Or do you think, do you think people are going to start, investing differently um the investing landscape will change and there's always different asset classes um evolving that i mean i think that's 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 a good thing to uh have for investors um to have choices of, yeah. of many different asset classes it's not just stocks and bonds like it was many years ago and so um you know a good example of that obviously is is um Cryptocurrencies, which is you know, there's still a debate over what is that considered a an, an asset class? Is it is it actually a you know, are they currencies? Um, they're not. Are they securities? They're not. Yeah, they're not regulated yet by um, because they're not considered um, securities. But um, yeah, that that may that may come. But it is cryptocurrencies are definitely a. Um, I guess it could, they could be considered an asset class that um, investors can use to either speculate in or, um, you know, for, for whatever other type of, uh, you know, whatever their goals are. Um, it's, but it's, I think it's a good thing to have a lot of different choices. So, yeah. So when people ask someone to manage their money, so I guess say you're not someone who's ever worked with a hedge fund or given head, your money to a hedge fund, when you give them your money, do you sort of specify, you know, I guess, do you choose a firm based on primarily returns? Do you think people choose based on the sort of assets that they're investing in? Um, I'm sort of wondering, I guess, what, what the major differences between hedge funds are and how they decide on what to invest in. Because they seem to, would you say that hedge funds drive mm, a majority of some of these markets, that their decisions are pretty key in the outcomes? They do have uh, um, a big effect on certain markets that, um, for example, a, a uh, mutual funds cannot invest in. Uh, I mean, a good example is, is cryptocurrencies because um, while there are a, a handful of mutual funds that have been able to figure out how to get some crypto exposure, it's um, not really that that widely um, done 
in uh, mutual funds um, just because of all the the regulation around them. Mm -hmm. um, hedge funds are able to much more easily get exposure to cryptocurrencies in, in, in many different ways, um, especially with futures contracts now on cryptocurrencies on bit there's Bitcoin futures specifically. But I think in, in markets where hedge funds have a lot easier access than mutual funds, then um, they probably do have um, a significant effect on on those asset prices. Yeah. Um, some of the markets that are much deeper, like, for example, we were talking about treasuries, obviously, hedge funds tra trade treasuries, mutual funds trade treasuries, uh, central banks do everybody that it's a huge, very deep market. So hedge funds, specifically as a type of investment vehicle, really don't have any effect uh, um, on, on treasury markets. Yeah. But if you get into a, a more um, esoteric asset class like um, cryptocurrencies, yeah. um, I think they you do move markets with a small they, amount of that portfolio. They can, yeah, um, they can, and there's certain other um, markets, certain derivative markets. Although mutual funds can pretty easily trade derivatives, um, they're they're certainly easier to do in hedge funds and there's some hedge funds that's focused specifically on derivatives and they may potentially have some influence in some corners of those markets. I see. So if I'm, if I'm a hedge fund, do I have like a target for what I'm trying to achieve this quarter or this year? And what are, what are some of the, I guess, um, I guess written into some of the contracts, are there certain times where they have to pull money out of the markets and have sort of a clean book? I mean, is it, I think, is it at the end of the year where you have to pull out for taxes? Are there certain things like that um, that affect markets in a big way um, that people should look out for if they are trading? Well, hedge funds really go on, on, um, on an annual cycle. It's, it's really um, January 1st through December 31st is, is their, their annual um, performance and that determines how everybody gets paid because hedge funds usually charge um, a performance fee of uh, it used to be 20%. It used to be they would charge a 2% management fee and a 20% performance fee, the, the, the so-called two and 20, Yeah. which, uh, you know, I, I believe it's come down quite a bit now. Really? Um, I've been out of the hedge fund space for about 10 years, but when I was doing it, it was two and 20 was pretty standard. It may be more of a 10% um, performance fee and a 1% management fee. So what that means is from January 1st to December 31st, um, if the if the hedge fund has a return of, uh, of 15%, basically the, um, the general partner of the hedge fund, which is really the, the company that's managing it, um, they would get 10% of that 15%, which is one and a half percent. Um, and then the, uh, basically the investors who are the limited partners, um, keep the rest of it. But if the hedge fund has a, uh, a negative return, if it's, if it's down for the year, if it's down 5%, then the following year, it, it doesn't get to start 
even um, accruing a performance fee until it's made that five percent back, which is the which is called the high water mark. So that makes sense. basically, um, then the hedge funds that you want to watch out for the ones that have a kind of a high, a high water mark that's um, kind of hard to overcome because usually what will happen is um, if there's if there's too high of a high water mark say I, I gave five percent example yeah. which is not that hard to overcome you could make 20 percent the next year and that five percent would be gone and then you would have a 15 percent return that's not that much to overcome but if hedge fund loses you know 20 percent in one year um and then you have to make up that 20 percent the following year before you can start accruing any yeah. sort of performance fee um what happens with those hedge funds is you may start to lose a lot of key personnel um you know a lot of the best um traders or analysts portfolio managers um who a good portion of their compensation comes out of that performance fee so if they're at a, at a, at a working at a firm that they know needs to make 20 percent before it even starts accruing a fee they're going to start jumping ship um that's usually usually what happens and so eventually that fund loses all its key personnel in it and it has to be shut down and they you know basically liquidate all their holdings so kind of the thing to watch out for is um hedge funds that have had um you know a, a pretty serious negative performance year and if you see even the beginning of key personnel leaving um, pretty good indication that, that that fund may shut down now the you know the general partner or basically the manager can just shut that fund down and, and launch another one but they will have to to liquidate all their holdings to shut it down so that's you know all these positions that are going to be dumped into the market um so what, what would be considered a good year? Like what percentage, you know, what return would be considered a really good year for a fund in your opinion? It, it depends what their, what type of uh, investment strategy they have and what their, what their, what their target is. There's, um, um, there's some funds that, that are, you know, basically, uh, they, you know, market neutral where, where basically they, say that they'll have a return that is not correlated at all to the equity markets. So a good return for those types of funds are, you know, even if, if equities are up 10%, you, you want the, the fund to be up something different, either yeah. more or less, because yeah. you're, you're basically getting into that hedge fund and not to diversify away from equities. Yeah. Correlated so, to risk at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah you want to have the hedge fund to, provide a type of return that it, it says it's going to. So if it says it's market neutral um, and equities are up 10%, you don't want to see the hedge fund up 10%. Even though 10% yeah. is not hard to argue with, you'd want to see it up maybe more or or even less than that. Oh. Um, but then, you know, if equities are down 5%, you don't, you don't want to see the hedge fund down 5%. You want to see it at some different amount. And then there's, there's different strategies that are that are more risky and they may, they may target a 15% uh, return. It's so it's not just the return. It's, it's the, the volatility. They may, they may say there's a 15% return with a, um, you know, volatility of, 
don't know, 10%, could be plus or minus 15%. Or they may be targeting a, an 8% return with volatility of 2%, 8% plus or minus 2 So it, as long as it's within the range of what they're saying the strategy should produce, um, I think the hedge fund investors are probably satisfied with that, but you, you don't want to get into a strategy that's marketed as a um, low risk, low volatility. Um, you know, I guess it would be uh, alarming if you if you bought into a hedge fund that said it's, you know, targeting 8% return with plus or minus 2% volatility. And then that fund ended up hitting 20% um, return, which would yeah. be great. But as an investor, you want to know what did they do to get this twenty yeah. percent? Like, what kind of risk are they taking on? Because that's not really what I signed I don't up for. Lose twenty it's, next quarter, yeah. Yeah, next so it's, it's more you know how are they performing um, versus what they what they said the strategy is expected to do? Because you don't want to be caught off guard. Um, so I guess we've talked a little bit about you know bonds, treasuries, equities, but I mean, really, I guess your bread and butter is options and futures. Um, so what would what would you say about I guess getting into options, sort of the math involved? Um, you know, how long did it take you to really get familiar with the options process and figure out how to make money doing it? Um, well, I would say it's it's definitely something that it takes more time to understand than just buying buying stocks. Um, but it also gives you a lot more flexibility. You um, you can make money when stocks are going up, or when they're going down, or when they're not expected to go anywhere. So um, I mean, there's any number of 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 books that can be read on the subject. But really, the you know the best way to do it probably is to um, to read a, a book about options and then to um, you know, you can you can open an options account at your at your uh, with your equities broker, E Trade, yeah, yeah. And even Robinhood has it now. Yeah, and they'll let you they'll let you most of them I think will let you paper trade. Essentially, you can enter option trades and see what the result would have been. But um, you know, it's really all all an option is is just it's it's paying a, a premium to have the right to either. Um, buy or sell a security um, uh, within a certain amount of time. And so it means if you think the prices of a security is gonna go up, you wanna, you wanna buy a call option that will give you the right to, to buy that security at a certain price. If the price of the security is, is 30 and you, you think it is gonna go up to 40, um, you can buy a call option that's out of the money with a, with a strike price of 35. And so, um, if if the stock goes above 35 um or even if it doesn't even have to go above 35 if the price of the stock goes up uh, the value of the option should go up if if too much time hasn't elapsed um but it's uh it 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 takes a, a while and it's it's good to um follow the prices and to see how the prices of the option move in relation to the to the price of the underlying stock you'll see the option basically uh the option price has two components the time value and the intrinsic value 
And you know, the, any option that has a certain amount of time left until expiration, it has some value um, because even if it's far out of the money, there's always some chance that there could be uh, some news and it could pop 10 or 15 percent. Um, so there's always the time value there until the very last day. Um, and intrinsic value is either is really like how how close it is to being in the money or when it's actually in the money, then there is intrinsic value. If the strike price is 35 and it's trading in the market at 36, you basically have a dollar of intrinsic value. So the best way to just get familiar with it is to follow some option prices and the prices of the underlying stock. And you'll see that the, the way that the option price moves um, as it gets closer to being in the money or in the money, eventually the option price moves pretty much one one to one with the stock when it is when it's when it's in the money. Mm -hmm. The stock goes up one percent, uh, the option should go up one percent when it's in the money. If it's far away from the, the strike price, the, the stock may go up one percent, but the option might barely move. Um, and once you follow these the price movements for a while, you'll get you'll get familiar with it. And, and there's there's various ways to, to tell um, to you know, calculate if an option price or the premium that you're going to pay for that option is is a fair amount uh, to pay because really the the key to making the money and options is to, you know, not necessarily to buy the option and, and exercise it at expiration, but to buy it uh, and then see the price of the option go up and then turn around and sell it. Yeah. So assume that at some point within that time frame, it's going to tick up as a result of some movement, right? Yeah. So how do you choose like what time frame you typically buy the options? You have certain, uh, I guess, certain time frames that you try to stick between, you know, you try to do a week, a month, three months, you know, where do you think is sort of the sweet spot with? Well, if you're trading options on equities, um, you know, I kind of look for some type of uh, news event that will be coming up for, I mean, for example, earnings report, um, you know, whether where there will be some type of, of movement, either you know, the price will go up or it will go down. Um, usually when there's an earnings report, there's something happens to the price. So, um, and you can, you know, you can structure your options, option trades to where you, you buy a call that would make money if it goes up and you buy a put that would make money if it goes down and you can, there's ways you can do it where you can, you know, buy options and then you can sell some options that are further out of the money and, and you can you can almost put on the whole position with with very little cost um i mean that's one way to do it around an event where there where you know there's going to be some type of price movement um another way to do it is if you don't think the price is going to move for a long time you can you can sell options um basically if you sell an option and it never um, goes into the money. You, you basically keep the, the premium that you receive for selling it. So sell, selling options um, is, a, is another strategy that you can you do if you think the price is basically just going to be um, pretty flat for, for quite a while. So there's a lot of different strategies. Um, and you, you really just, you, you should read about what they are and then you should follow um, the prices 
before you actually start trading because there's a lot of option prices don't move as I guess as um, as as smoothly as maybe equities do. They kind of they, they jump all over the place, um, and it's it's not if if you've been trading just exclusively equities and you jump right into options, the price movements of options would be a little alarming until you follow them for a while and see, you know, how option prices move with um, regards to the underlying stock price. Yeah. It seems like patience really seems to pay off with options, especially I guess here's one more question as far as if you are predicting, you know, a big swing during an earnings announcement. So say I have a good feeling that NVIDIA is going to have a somewhat big earnings quarter and I bought an option, you know, three months ahead of time, am I going to get a much better deal than I would get, you know, a month ahead of time or, you know, regardless of which way people sort of think it's going to go, I guess. Um, do you think buying early gets you a, an implied discount just because so many people have their money in other places that they're not willing to stick it somewhere for, you know, so many months ahead of time? Well, if, if you buy a few months before the earnings release, you're going to pay more for the, the time value. Um, I mean, let's say the, you know, the earnings, uh, is in, um, I don't know, let's, let's say the third week of April. Um, you know, if you buy in, in February, if you buy an option that, that expires, you know, roughly the day of the earnings release, you're, you're paying for two months of, of time value. Whereas if you buy, let's say a week before, um, the earnings release, you're paying a lot less in time value, but you also have to look at what kind of, what kind of news is going to take place in those two months in February. Um, you know, the speculation as to how their earnings are going to be, it may just be speculation. There's not that good of information. And so the option premium might not be that high. Um, there's more time value but there's maybe less news out there about what the earnings are going to be like. Um, and if you wait until a week before you're not paying, you're only paying for a week's worth of time value, but maybe almost everything is known about what the earnings are. It's already factored in yeah. to the price and then the price of the option has gone up. So there's really no, um, there's, there's no good, good rule <laughs> as to yeah. when to buy it, but there are, there are, ways to um to determine if the you know premiums are uh i guess a, a good deal yeah. um but there's it's really beyond the scope of our discussion. there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of good books out there about it do you um, have any you'd suggest um no not offhand it's just you have to um you know basically look online and find something that kind of fits here. I mean, if you, if you were looking for a beginner's option, a trading book, there's plenty of those that just basically get into puts and calls and just buying outright buying options. And then you can get some more of the advanced strategies, buying and selling or, um, doing all sorts of different spread strategies like straddles and strangles and butterflies and condors and pretty interesting <laughs> stuff that's yeah. really beyond the scope of like a beginning options book but 
kind of what just what you're interested in find a book that covers that and and then just follow the action in the market you can just learn from there yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like the best way to learn is just by doing it throwing a little money in and seeing where it goes you, um, yeah you can buy options for you know it, like like i said you can probably paper trade at most brokers you can also buy options for 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 pretty cheap um you know there's there's um most um equities have a, a wide range most most equities that have options traded on not all equities have options it has to yeah. be a, a company that actually has options on their stocks but most of them have a pretty wide range of strike prices and expiration dates and you know the farther out of a strike price you go and the closer you are to expiration it's pretty inexpensive i just yeah. have to remember that an options price is basically quoted in a um it's it's a it's it's an option on on 100 shares yeah so if if the price if the option price is um is is 50 cents um for example um you're basically to be paying 50 dollars because it's it's 50 cents times uh, 100 shares yeah so um i think maybe that's one reason some people don't get into it quite as quickly because it does seem like it takes more money to be able to de-risk it in such a way where you can make money i guess so the less money you have the more risk you have to take on i guess in some ways um just because you can't you know get into those really sweet spots uh yeah it's it's yeah it's kind of daunting um there's there's been a lot of empirical studies done that most option buyers um lose money where the <laughs> options the option sellers are the ones that really? make money yeah. and i think that's kind of related to the fact that most beginning option traders are kind of just buying kind like of maybe buying a call <laughs> on some stock they think is going to go up and they're not really sure how to know if that premium is a fair price to, to pay for that call or not and so um there's a lot of research out there that says the option sellers um you know make make more than option buyers do so it's yeah it's it's something that actually looks you know pretty easy you think this uh i think the stock is going up so just you know buy this option for for not a lot of money but you got to remember that that the price of that premium has been very meticulously yeah. calculated by the sellers <laughs> yeah and they have tons of statistical data that shows that you know the probability of it going to a certain price by a certain date um, you know expected value of that and they've already priced it into what it is and so you know beginning option buyers be aware it may you know yeah. may not be as good of a deal as, as it looks the sellers are the ones that um you know the professionals that yeah and it's this. also it's, I, a lot of the hedge funds come in like we were talking about yeah they do, that you know it's fair to say tons that, and tons of research all the people also that would have some sort of inside information would probably be the people also buying options is that fair to say so if you were yeah. you know a lot of times when there's you know unfortunately you'll you know you'll hear about it because uh you know the, the sec basically um yeah, they monitor actually they look for spikes in in um option option buying like mm -hmm. you know buying of uh, a big spike and buying a calls of a particular company you know 
like right before an announcement comes out that it's getting bought by another company and the price jumps up. That's such a red flag. The, yeah. the SEC now is is really all over that kind of stuff that um, in the last, I don't know, less than 10 years, they've become, they've, they've invested a ton of money in, in into big, big data, um, data mining. And if there's a bit, uh, spike in options buying and then a few days later, uh, the stock price jumps up, um, guaranteed yeah, SEC will be all over it. Yeah, they have they have ways to they have um, um, signals that will pop and it will alert them to this. So, so um, don't don't trade on insider info yeah. with a big account. <laughs> no, they the yeah they the SEC actually um, surprisingly now is pretty sophisticated with that and will they will that kind of stuff it, it's an immediate red flag. Yeah. What's what's the minimum account balance you'd need to red flag? Do you think they're just looking for people who are you've got like a billion dollars they're playing with or um yeah, I don't know. I don't know what their threshold is, but I it I think, you know, any sort of um you know, if the the average daily volume in a in a in call options on XYZ security is is uh you know, a thousand options and then on one particular day there was say a hundred thousand options, which is actually, you know, $10 million yeah. because each option is a hundred shares. So it, I would assume they're probably comparing the average volume to, you know, something that's, that's an outlier that's, yeah. you know, 50 Intentions or a hundred or a few hundred percent more than the average volume com in, in um, comparison to uh, a price move of the security. That's, you know, X amount over uh, above its, 200 day moving average or something. It's, I'm sure it's, they have SEC now actually has yeah. you know, algorithms that, that, you know, sweep for this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, you, you just, if you have a, um, uh, I guess, um, some sort of way to back it up, you know, the SEC is, is, is going to come and ask where did, why did you decide to buy these options? Yeah. And, and, it's to say just, you know, I had a hunch, you know, probably <laughs> yeah. not. Um, Go with my gut. <laughs> might, you know, they might do a little more digging if that's what your uh, response is. And, 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 you know, hedge funds will, that's why they, they meticulously keep records of their um, their trading, Research. Um, you know, to, to back up uh, their trades and, you know, in, in case something like that happens. Yeah. Well, you got to keep an eye out for that. But with that, I mean... Thanks so much for coming out. I think we've gone over sort of all the basics of finance and some of these interesting things that I wanted to get to that fall within your area of expertise. So um, I think we're going to stop it there. Thanks, guys, for listening. And we'll be back with some uh, exciting new guests, a couple ICOs we have coming up this week that will be interesting to listen to. So uh, thanks for stopping by, and we'll see you soon.